0: The story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as that 70s show and that 90 show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Paul Sinclair, I know what you mean when you talk about the stigma that comes attached with the ideas of werewolves. Uh, People will say, oh, that's just something that Hollywood made up, when in fact... Uh, werewolves, werecats, shapeshifters, things of that sort, That those have been reported throughout human civilization, throughout human history, pretty much everywhere. I mean the oldest petroglyph in the world shows a shapeshifter, and as you document in your film Wolflands, the idea of shapeshifters in that particular area, East Yorkshire, has been around as long as people have been there, right? It's very concentrated there.
3: It, it really is. You know, when you start peeling back the layers, George, and you realize that this, do we call it a phenomena, this, it's real, it's very real, and it's been here all of the time. And it's come through the generations and come through over hundreds of years. It seems to resurface. And like I touched on earlier, is it—is that just because you've got someone in the area a little bit more interested, stroke dedicated? I don't know. If we go back hundred over 120 years, in a tiny village in North Yorkshire, and there's not a lot separate, separating East and North, you know. I mean, I'm only probably 12 miles from the border of North Yorkshire, not even that. But there was a a writer and researcher called Howard Brearley, and I found it in an old archive uh, whilst looking through old documents uh, in 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 the Bridlington Library. And Howard Brearley wrote about what he called the Barghest, a huge fur-covered hound with huge glowing red eyes that frequented, that haunted the, the forests and moors of North Yorkshire. And what's interesting, he lived in East Aiton, and I touched on this, the forest of Hackness. So, apologies. I touched on the forest of Broxer earlier, and in between Broxer and, and East Aiton, you've got Hackness, which is the heart of the Forge Valley, and when you when you go into Hackness, it, it's literally four miles from East Ayton. So this man, 120 years ago, is talking about this. He's obviously got some knowledge of it, and there's probably ancient texts and those, there's, I don't know, maybe oral stories that have gone to the grave with people way back then, but he had knowledge of it back then, the Bargest of East Ayton and it's literally four miles from The the, the entrance to the Forge Valley, which is Hackness, incidentally, Hackness um, used to be called Hachanos, which means with the whiskers. Quite where that fits into everything, George, I don't know, but it's an interesting name.
2: Well, the other one is Humnaby. this little settlement, Humnaby. What does that mean? It's translated into...
3: Yeah, it's Hund, meaning hound, Hund. So you'll find a lot of people in eastern North Yorkshire, they've, they've got their own dialect. So they'll say uh, a hund and but it actually means a hound or a dog so you've got hund man so you've got hound man so when you put them together be be hundmanby is a village incidentally it's two miles from flixton which is the place where we talk about the flixton werewolf and there's nothing in between hundmanby and flixton there's just barren land there's woodland and, and open land, the wolds, which in ancient text means the wilds. So you've got Hundmanby, Hundmanby, George, which literally means farmstead of the houndman. <laughs> now that's yeah. I've not created this to fit it in nicely into the documentary Wolfland. The, these ingredients are already there for me, and and it's so fascinating because in between Flixton and Hundmanby, farmstead of the houndman, you've got a hill that you branch off from flixton and go up this hill and it's called white gate hill the amount of reports that i've got from white gate hill is is uncanny of a upright bipedal creature that's jumped into the road in front of two ladies driving home they haven't gone on film i've i've, I've got their story and we, we do hope to get them in the next documentary uh, obviously, the driving, they've not been drinking. It's took them by surprise. They're going down White Gate Hill towards Flixton, and this thing jumps into the road, and they saw it for a split second. I don't think these things are... By chance, George, you've got all that open countryside, you've got all that woodland, yet suddenly something jumps in front of somebody's car and then springs off. She said everything looked, or they said, apologies there, they said everything looked wrong about this, yet it moved so fast. Uh, It was very lean as well, I'm told. There's another story, and I've called this The Twig Man, and it came from October 2017. October, October the twenty sixth, twenty twenty two, and once again we've got a guy who's driving from a nearby village called Muston, and once again we're only three miles from Flixton, two miles from Hummumbey. Muston used to be called Moonstone. There was a large stone there many many years ago, but he's driving there in the night. I think he said the time was just before nine pm, about fifty miles an hour, and. He said, he, 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 in his peripheral vision, he caught so, a glimpse of something, stood at the side of the road, and as he approached it, it immediately set off running and was keeping up with the car, which is not possible at 50 miles an hour, 50, uh, 50 to 60, I think, is what he said. He said he's fiddling with the full beam, and he put the full beam on his car and caught a glimpse of this thing, which he thought, when he saw it in his peripheral, it was. he thought it was covered in twigs. He thought it was just a huge upright, bipedal, whatever, he doesn't know how to describe it, covered in twigs. Now he believes it was matted hair. He said it kept up with his car for about 10 seconds. He said, I'm still messing with the lights and shocked by what I've seen. And it just diverted and just ran away into the onto what's called Flixton Star Car. Once again, the ancient lake bed where the people from the Mesolithic times, I said to have practiced shamanistic magic and sacrifice. So all the ingredients are there, everything seems to be linked. And uh, you know, I'm not bending these stories, George, to fit a narrative, they, it, it, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's perfect. It's like, it's just fitted together. Huntmanby, be like you said, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, I find it fascinating.
4: It's the Kia summer sticker sales event.
1: So give your friends something to look at. Like a BnB and b with an ocean view
2: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's one of the stories that you come back to uh, through the film. Uh, You go camping with these guys who had had an experience. You go back to the location. It's down in this ravine. It's almost pretty claustrophobic. They were down there. There There's no way they could really get out in a hurry. But what did they see down there that just scared the bejesus out of them?
3: Well, yeah, th- th- these are the guys that pr- planned their wild camp. They do it two or three times a year. There was three of them; only two would go on film. And they contacted me, George. I mean, obviously, I would not know these stories unless people had. Uh, and I'll, I'll I'll get into that, more, but momentarily, when this when Steve first contacted me, and he'll not mind me saying this, he broke down in tears. He was he, he'd nobody to speak to apart from Jim, who'd witnessed it with him. And, and as he says in Wolflands, he'd not even told his wife. And they they drove from a place called Rotherham, which would be about 130 miles away, and they drove to a place uh, and parked up at a place called Reesty Bank, which, in essence, the word Reesty means rancid and, and, and disgusting place. But there's nothing smelly about it. it. Why it's called that, I don't know. And then from there, they went on foot into the forest of Broxer and descended into a ravine. It's a seven to 800-foot ravine. We've spent time down in there, as you said, and when they went in that night, they went in quite late and they didn't know the correct route. So in some places they had to go down on the bottoms because it was so steep. There's actually another path where it's very steep, but you can still make access without doing that. Now, witness number three, as we'll call him, who hasn't gone on film. This is the interesting part for me, the more paranormal aspect to it. When they got down there and started setting up camp, because these guys weren't interested in unexplained phenomena, all they wanted to do, they were again the River Derwent, which runs in the bottom of this ravine, Uh, all they wanted to do was just relax and have an, an incredible weekend, these three guys together just in the wilds, and witness number three said, I don't like it, we've got to go, there's something watching us. Now, as Steve said, He said, It was getting dark. We'd already struggled to get down there, and there was no way we were getting up in the night. And he's getting more and more nervous. So, to the point where he's, they think he's going to go on his own, he said. And then all of a sudden, he, the witness number three said, Look over there. And in the darkness, a huge pair of amber eyes lit up. These eyes just. Blowing in the darkness. As Jim said, he said, no torch on them, the firelight wasn't illuminating them, and I went back on my own, you know, well, I went back with a friend and we measured it. It was 42 feet away. I took a surveyor's tape, and because I'd already camped in the area with these guys, I knew exactly where it appeared and where they were sat. And in the end, Jim and Steve were so concerned that their friend were going to go running off into the darkness that Jim stood up and walked towards this Whatever it was, he said, it was about three foot off the ground, but he said, but the eyes were huge, as big as his fists, and human-shaped, and, and amber. He said, and nah, I couldn't think of an animal to assign these eyes to. Those were his exact words. He said, so I stood up, made a few hissing and shooing sounds, and it, it disappeared. So I turned back round to the guys, to my friends, and suddenly their jaws, they dropped. He said, and nah, I realised something was wrong. He said, so when I turned back, He said, I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. He says, from being three foot off the ground, these eyes were now seven foot in the air, and I could see the outline of this. What they said was a werewolf, as crazy as that might sound for people. And you know, George, it's not just that. Steve said, if you'd have asked me to draw that, a werewolf, sketch it, I wouldn't have drawn that. He said, it was ridiculous. He said everything about it looked ridiculous. He said you could see these monstrous shoulders. He said and every so often it would turn to the right. And they could see this muzzle that w- looked exaggerated so long. And, he, and Steve admits, and I'm not, you know, I don't mind using the names because these guys have been happy enough to go on film. And what they've said, what I'm saying now is nothing that they've not said on film. He said, it watched us all night. He said, no. In the end, he said, I-, I wanted it to be over and I wasn't bothered how it ended. It was so frightening. He said, I couldn't even look at it, yet I could still see the glowing eyes in my peripheral. And he said, it was absolutely terrifying. And daylight started to seep through and it had gone. But had it gone? Because their friend said, it's still here. It's still here. And as they're packing the things up and walking out of the forest as hastily as they can, he's still telling them it's there. And then they got to a certain point in the forest. He says, we're all right now. It's gone. And there's another element to that, George, that I didn't add. During the night when it was watching them, when they're all huddled together and and frightened, witness number three said, it doesn't want you here. It wants Mm. you to go so that implies to me and, and Jimmy and Steve hadn't picked up on it and all. The, and I know we'll never know because I don't think they've spoken to him about it it's troubled him so much that this thing somehow was communicating with him he says it doesn't want you to be It wants you to go Jim he says he, he said in Yorkshire dialect and thee which means and you and thee Steve it wants you to go it don't want you here so How did he perceive that? How did he know that that creature, whatever it was, was watching him? There's definitely some element that takes these things over and above your standard flesh and blood, bone and skin animal. For me, and I know not everybody's going to agree, but that's the way I look at it, George.
2: I'm going to play a little clip, Uh, one clip that you provided to us uh, from the film. It's, it's one of the witnesses. You can tell us a little bit, fill in some details on the other side of it, but we're gonna play that now, Michael.
4: So as I'm settling down, I hear a noise over to the left. It's a good distance away, 20, 30 meters away. I've heard this noise in the brush. It sounds like an animal, but it sounded like a relatively big, something decent size. Yeah. Then I've become aware that the, uh, the atmosphere has changed. Sort of, I can't hear the waves anymore. I can't really hear any, uh, any wind. Insect noise is pretty much gone. It's just still, it's like someone's pressed pause then all of a sudden I get an anxiety that's sort of starting to come over me. I'm looking over to the direction where the noises has come from originally, and I can hear something in that area, but it's coming towards me. It's, uh, I, I can hear a boom of sort of footsteps, but I couldn't pick any footsteps heavy, out. Real heavy footsteps? Really heavy. But it, it was the atmosphere that came with it. It was, like, it was like a train was charging at me or a group of racehorses. Something was coming towards me.
3: I need to stress here, you don't come up in these areas and experience anything like this usually, do no, you? No,
4: never before. Like, I've, I've sat here all night long, not heard anything, not been bothered, not been nervous about anything. It's, it's dark up here, but that doesn't worry me at all. It's, it's strange that something would bother me, but it was almost like the anxiety in me just switched on from where I can't tell you. Proper fear? I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified.
2: Paul, you've heard that description from multiple witnesses that you interview for this film, is somehow this these creatures tap into the brain, into the flight or fight uh, response, and, and the fear is exaggerated and immediate, right?
3: That's correct. He, as he says, he, he went from zero to ten. It, it's kind of in an instant. And anybody who watches the film and sees this guy, Gaz, uh, that's his first name. Uh, we'll we'll realise that he's he's quite a formidable looking guy, a really nice man as well, to be honest with you. But uh, he'd gone up to a place called Scalby Mills, which is on the edge of the North Sea, and he'd gone to to try and film and get photographs of the Northern Lights. And it's a remote place, quite remote on this cliff top. And it, this is one of the instances where he didn't actually see anything, but he, he it, this this terror impressed itself upon him and as he says he first of all he could hear movement in the brush a distance away and he, he sort of felt focused on that and then he can hear heavy footsteps bipedal footsteps coming towards him what the if it would have played a little bit more of that George it would it would have said that it when, when the fear hit him this wave of fear And he said it was almost as though someone had pressed pause. I loved his analogy. He said, because the sound of the sea, the sound of the seabirds, and and anybody who's lived near the coast uh, who was listening to this will know that the seabirds don't switch off in the night. They've Mm. uh, they've got better eyes than owls, to be honest, George. They're absolutely amazing flying everywhere. And uh, he said, but everything stopped, like someone had pressed pause. And he, he could feel this pressure in the air and this thing coming towards him. And he said, I dropped into the fetal position. And I expected to get whacked was his exact words. He expected to get something was going to hit him. And as soon as he felt like it was upon him, everything just snapped back to normal. And the experience, it was as if it had never happened.
2: Yeah, this guy is a big, tough-looking guy. And he says, I felt like I was a five-year-old kid. I was absolutely terrified.
0: Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern. And go to coasttocoastam.com for more. The story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app,
2: Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket.